Blog Talk Radio. on the Delta, an African adventure. I'm author Sherry Knowlton, uh, and this is the third in a series of podcasts focused both on my new book, Dead on the Delta, and its Botswana, Africa setting. Today's episode is Life as a Lion Researcher, an interview with Robin Kotzka. In celebration of the launch of my fifth book in the Alexa Williams series, Uh, Dead on the Delta, I decided to do this limited uh, adventure podcast series that talks, yes, about my book, but more broadly, the series focuses on the Botswana setting uh, and some of the themes that play a role in this novel. Now, the book itself takes readers on a hair-raising journey to Botswana. Uh, It was officially launched on February 16th. And my main character, Alexa Williams, um, is doing some uh, volunteer lion research uh, on the Okavanga Delta and ends up uh, tangling with elephant poachers, conservation politics, and all sorts of um, dangerous things. Uh, I had taken a number of safaris to Botswana and elsewhere in the past, but to research this book, I realized that I needed more specific knowledge um, about some of the aspects of what I intended to write about. And uh, one of the most helpful parts of the research that I did on the ground in Botswana was engaging with the woman who's on the phone with me today, um, our guest, Robin. Uh, She was generous enough to spend several days Um, out in the bush with me, um, educating me about the life of a lion researcher, or I suppose I spent the time out with her, really. Um, And she also talked to me about the wonderful conservation research project she's associated with. Well, I'm going to introduce Robin Kotzka by really just reading her bio first, and then we'll launch into a more informal interview. With a keen interest in wildlife conservation and large carnivores, Robbins studied zoology at the University of Pretoria. Uh, She stayed on in 2010 to complete her honors degree, which investigated patterns of den use in Ardwolf in the Northern Cape, South Africa. In 2011, she worked as a co-manager on a game farm in the Northwest Province, of South Africa, setting up a breeding program for rare game and managing both captive and free-ranging large herbivores, including buffalo, sable, roan, and white rhino. Uh, The next year, she moved to Botswana to start research on lions in the southwestern Okavanga Delta. Uh, She worked with a group called Tau Consultants. Uh, And during the winter months when the western Okavango was flooded, she returned to South Africa and continued to work on the game management project. 
uh, and she then conducted research in Botswana in the summer. During this time, she completed her Master's of Science degree through the University of the Witwatersrand, I might say this wrong, Witwatersrand on Alliance Social Organization and Population Demographics in the Western Okavango Delta using historical data from the area. She, Robin is complete, currently completing her fieldwork, uh, which will contribute to her PhD based on lion research in the Western Okavanga Delta. Uh, in 2017, she joined the Trans-Kalahari Predator Program to assist in camera trap surveys in the Okavanga um, and other protected areas in Botswana. She's also completing field work for the Predator Program um, aimed at examining connectivity between the Western Okavanga Delta and Namibia aligning with the program's goals to establish secure corridors for lion movement within the Kaza landscape. She's calling in today, as I said, from Botswana. Um, before I welcome her, I just want to note that there's a really great photo of Robin uh, that introduces the podcast online uh, where she's sitting next to a lion that's been darted and knocked out so she can fit him with a tracking collar. Makes your heart pause for just a minute. So welcome, Robin. Hi, Sherry. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm always excited to talk about lions. <laughs> Yes, I know you love lions, uh, and I can see why. Is there anything important uh, about your background that you want to share that that, that I missed? Yeah, I think I think my bio pretty much covers it all. Um, you know, I was born in South Africa, um, and I think especially in my teenage years, I was really fortunate um, to have access to areas like the Kruger National Park. Um, and also through friends to access to private game reserves, which really helped to cultivate my interest in wildlife. Um, I've always been interested in wildlife um, since I was very, very young. Um, so obviously, as a teenager growing up, those opportunities for me were really exciting. Um, and that kind of steered the direction of my career. I've, I've always decided that I'm going to work with big cats. Um, and so as soon as my studies started, I kind of had that single-minded single goal um, in mind that it would end up in big cat research. Okay, so that, that was always the focus. You, you, you worked your way through some other species like aardwolf and the herbivores, but um, your goal was always lion research? <laughs> yes, yes, it was. Um, I think since I was... Probably about five years old. I've I've always had an obsession with big cats. Um, it started off with tigers, really, um, and then I kind of fell in love with lions as well. Um, so I think some of my, even if you look at some of my school books, um, you know, from first grade, a lot of the sentences revolve around big cats and talking about cheetahs and talking about lions. Um, so I really <laughs> feel like this this is what I was meant to do. <laughs> um, I think. Uh -huh. I wasn't one of those people who who kind of switched between, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to be a fireman, or when I grow up, I'm going to be a doctor. 
um, I think pretty much from the beginning is when I grow up, I'm going to be a zoologist. Um, and big cats was my was my main aim. Oh, that's great. Um, and uh, you know, I I think the some of the most fascinating animals in the world are big cats. Um, I know we went on a tiger safari in India, which was just awesome. Uh, but I also when we go to Africa uh, on safari, um, really, I'm always fascinated by the lions and the leopards and the, the cheetahs. Uh, they're among my favorites. So so let's talk about yeah, think- uh, the actual animals that you research, um, lions. Like most of the animal populations in Africa, lion populations are in danger. They're, they're shrinking. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this situation, tell our listeners about the plight of lions these days? Um, you know, is there hope for preserving lions in the wild long term? I think there's always hope. <laughs> I think that has to be your yeah. first rule as a conservationist. Um, but yeah, I think if I can put it in perspective from a numbers point of view um, and kind of start with that and then tackle the issues that surround lion conservation today. Um, at sure. the beginning of the 20th century, so we're talking about the 1900s, there were an estimated 1 million lions that roamed the planet. Um, oh, my by gosh. By the 1950s, yeah, um, that's quite a big number. And uh, by the 1950s, so we're talking half a century later, that number had more than halved. So they estimate around 450,000. Um then fast forward um, 50 to 70 years later where we are today, the current estimate for the lion population is about 20,000 uh, wild individuals. Um, and a lot of the decline um, has kind of accelerated in the last two to three decades. Um, so lions mm-hmm. are basically from going to from one of the most prolific predators on the planet, they now occupy less less than 20% of their original range. And the only remaining lion populations occur in Africa and a small population occurs um, in India. Wow, that's sad. So, um, you know, one of the things that you do in, in, in your job is with the goal of preserving lions is try to study um, study them and uh, you know other conservation efforts to, to help preserve existing populations. Can, can you tell our listeners just a brief overview of uh, you know sort of the nitty gritty about what do you do as, as a lion researcher? You know what's a, a a typical day look like? And I, I guess I know enough at this point to say you know in the field or um, a typical day in the office because I know a, a lot of the the your work is also in the office. But but just tell us a little bit about what you do and you know maybe the the projects that you're working on. Uh, yeah, sure. So we we are focused on on lion conservation from from a real holistic point of view. 
Um, I think the conservation landscape today is quite complicated. Um, some of the main threats that, that the remaining lion populations face um, is really a loss of habitat, um, which I touched on, um, and then also competition with people. Um, you know, often people come to Africa or they go on safari and, you know, you go to places like the Serengeti or to Kruger National Park um, or even into the Okavango Delta and you see, the, you see lions, you see them in big prides. Um, and you kind of get the impression that all is well. Um, but being such big predators, um, they do need a lot of space, especially because they're a group living species. So what often happens is these lions, um, their home ranges often extend well beyond the borders of what has been designated as protected areas. And this is where lions kind of run into trouble. Um, they come into contact with people. Um, you know, as the human population grows and as it expands, um, as agriculture expands and as livestock farming expands, um, lions are kind of being forced into smaller and smaller pockets. Um, a lot of lions are killed in retaliation for killing livestock. Um, and also mm -hmm. people compete with lions for prey. Um, you know, a lot of areas on the borders of national parks, um, they are very poor and very marginalized communities. Um, and sometimes as part of food security, they rely heavily on bushmeat. Um, and this um, problem of less prey available for lions, which means there's less capacity for lions. And it also means that lions then tend to turn more towards livestock because that's um, more freely available. Um, so. Our project is basically focused on trying to address some of these issues. Um, and in order to do that, we basically use a combination of, of research and then human wildlife conflict mitigation. Um, so as you, as you mentioned earlier, part of what our, our research is focused on um, is looking for ways to secure corridors between these designated protected areas. Um, mm -hmm. Many areas in Africa still remain unfenced. Um, so there is the potential for lions to move between these protected areas. Um, but this is often through human-dominated landscape. Um, and so they have to find ways to kind of navigate all of the risks. Um, so part of the research that we're busy with at the moment, um, and particularly for our, our area in Botswana and also including the surrounding countries, um, which forms CASA, as was mentioned in my bio. Um, that's the Kavango Zambezi Transfrontier Conservation Area, um, which okay. combines Botswana with four other African countries um, in order to create a large landscape in which wildlife can move freely between these countries and across the borders um, to ensure that people can benefit from them from a tourism point of view and also to maintain the health um, and robustness of these different wildlife populations. So part of our research is focused on investigating exactly where these corridors are. Um, so we use, we basically develop a model for the CASA region, um, which looks at which, which areas are most likely to be corridors between the various protected areas um, and national parks within this CASA region. And then on the ground, we try and ground truth and we try and verify um, if animals are indeed using those corridors. So part of my, I guess, daily 
daily work um, or seasonal work um, would be putting collars or tracking devices um, onto the sub-adult male lions, which eventually are kicked out of the pride once they reach a suitable age, um, and seeing if they leave these protected areas, which corridors are they using, and does this align with what we've predicted? Um, ah, I see. So that's just a little bit of, yeah, so that's really important. Um, you know, obviously modeling is just that. <laughs> it is a model, <laughs> it is a prediction, um, and it's really important that we have to actually verify on the ground um, that what we're predicting is happening is indeed the case. Um, and once we have verified that, then we can take the correct steps to make sure that that corridor remains viable for, for the movement of lions. Right. I mean, lions don't stop at the Botswana border where it says leaving Botswana now and say, oh, I'm just going to stay here. I'm a Botswana lion, right? They they keep moving into <laughs> Namibia or Zambia or wherever. Uh, so, and and they need that space in order to survive. Am I correct? Yes, yes, exactly. Um, you know, lions don't have passports. They don't need to passport control. Um, and, and that's one of the challenges that we have within CASA is to kind of keep track of those lions. You know, as soon as they're leaving Botswana, um, you know, even from a, from a conservation perspective, we often have a scenario where we have a protected area on one side of the border, but on the other side of the border, there may be a lot of cattle posts, and that's maybe agricultural land or farming land. And so we have to try and come up with solutions to try and alleviate the conflict where you've got um, this kind of hard boundary where you're moving from a wildlife area where wildlife thrives and it's protected, um, and then you're suddenly moving into farmland where the lions may threaten the livelihoods of the communities in those areas. Um, so that kind of leads into the second, second main focus um, of our project, which, as you mentioned earlier, was the Trans-Kalahari Predator Program. Um, is mm -hmm. to hire local community members um, and train them in, in how to mitigate conflict. Um, so one of the techniques that we use um, is setting up lion-proof enclosures so that um, the cattle can, because a lot of the predation occurs at night, lions are nocturnal animals, um, and they do a large majority of their hunting at night. So we try and construct these crawls so that people can put their cattle away at night and then the lions are not able to get into the crawls to access the cattle, and the cattle are not able to break out of the crawls, which would put them in danger of, of being predated on by the lions. So that solves both problems. It, it takes away the ability for the lion to kill the, the livestock, and it also then makes the villagers happy because they don't lose a valuable resource uh, since livestock is just a, a, such an important part of the economy uh, in some uh, local areas, correct? Yes, exactly. Um, a lot of people um, use cattle as kind of a bank. Um, so it's kind of their insurance policy. Um, it's their indication of wealth. Um, and it also holds a lot of cultural value and importance. Um, so obviously, they feel really strongly about protecting that, um, that livelihood of theirs. Um, and this is, is why working with local communities in these areas is so important. 
because you really do need their buy-in into conservation, um, you know, in order to ensure that lions can persist into the foreseeable future. Right. I, I know um, my husband Mike and I once were in the Maasai Mara, and uh, this was actually in broad daylight. I, I know a lot of lion hunting, or they go out on the prowl often at night, although they certainly hunt in the day too. But we watched a um, in the it was on the Maasai Mara, and we watched a lion stalk a donkey, uh, and there was actually uh, a Maasai kid who was tending the herd, uh, and he tried to fight the lion off with a stick, uh, and our guide um, ended up uh, having the kid um, come and sit in the vehicle with us because the lion did kill the donkey, uh, but they were worried that the okay. child going to be in a lot of trouble as well when he got home because he'd lost a valuable family uh, resource with the donkey. Yeah, and that just highlights um, really the reality of conservation in Africa today. Um, you know, a lot of these communities are very under-resourced. Um, and in a lot of areas, it is the tradition for the children to go out and look after the cattle. Um, so you can imagine the immense challenges that they face um, in terms of looking after their livestock, um, especially if you've now got a situation where you have a young boy that's now got to face off against the lion. Um, that really right. kind of drives on the reality of how difficult it can be to live with large predators. Yes, I, I think um, that it's for us in, uh, who, who don't live in Africa, and don't get me wrong, I'm an avid conservationist, uh, but to think that you could go out your back door and have a lion sitting in your garden um, puts a slightly different twist on things uh, than it does when you're on safari and you know, you're just looking at them in the wild. So. I understand that it's a real struggle, and it's this program you call it the Guardian Program, I believe. That's a wonderful idea. It's a wonderful idea. Yes, and so, uh, so we we in Botswana we we call it the community what we call them community guardians. Um, whereas in our Zimbabwe part of the project we call them Long Shield Lion Guardians. Um, so, but they fulfill the same role, which is using the community members themselves and empowering them to be able to tackle these challenges. Okay. All right. Um, and just one uh, uh, example of, of a lion going from across this invisible border of a protected area to a non-protected area that our, my, our listeners might relate to is actually something that one of your project managers uh, encountered with a, a lion that he uh, was monitoring, which is Cecil, who's become very famous in America when he was killed um, in Zimbabwe. And that was his situation, right? He was lured out of a protected park and killed once he got into uh, private land. Yeah, that I think also again highlight, highlights, um, you know, some of the challenges of having mixed land uses. 
um, and making sure that, you know, adjacent land use um, activities, um, whether it's hunting or whether it's um, commercial farming, um, does not happen to the detriment of lions within protected areas. Um, so really a lot, a lot of what we try to do is to make our research interdisciplinary um, and come up with really practical solutions that can work for multiple stakeholders because I think what it's important to, to realize in terms of today's conserva conservation landscape is that there are multiple stakeholders involved. Um, lots of these stakeholders have different interests. Um, and so we have to find ways to kind of meet everything in the middle to make sure that, that people prosper, but to also make sure that, that lions prosper. Right. Trying to make it a win-win situation whenever you can. Yes, yes exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, one, of, one of the things I wanted to ask you, because I know that when we were together uh, a few years back, uh, you told me some interesting stories, and you do spend a lot of your life uh, as part of your job out in the middle of absolutely nowhere, uh, far away from camps and people um, among the wildlife uh, have you ever encountered any uh, hair-raising situations or dangerous situations that you could share? <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think I've racked up a few um, in the time that I've <laughs> been in the fields and and um, certainly working with both herbivores um, and with and with carnivores. Um, I think. Probably the mo the one that stands out the most um, that was kind of the most hair raising, um, and I'm always a little bit hesitant to share it because I don't want to put people off camping. <laughs> we we had started a fieldwork season and it was kind of the first day we were out. Uh, we were setting up camera traps as part of our um, part of our research program, which is also to um, get an estimate of population numbers in in, in the key lion um, populations in Botswana. And so we were out, um, and it was in the Delta. It was in my old study area, um, which is where I did my PhD fieldwork before I joined our crew. Um, and so we'd finished up the day, and we came to this nice clearing. It was really scenic and really beautiful. It was just along a channel, and so we decided that we would set up camp for the night. Um, and kind of, you know, I always have a look around and, ma and just make sure that it's, you know, no, nothing in the immediate vicinity. Um, uh -huh. Found this beautiful hollow log. Yeah. Uh, it's always a good idea to check. Um, check for fresh animal sign if you're about to set up camp, um, especially in an area that, that's not designated as a camping site. Um, and so we found this hollow log and I my torch to look inside because I thought, oh, you know, that could easily be a place for an animal to hide. Um, but there was nothing in there. So I didn't think any, anything of it. Went to bed um, and it was myself and two colleagues. Um, and then at some point, I think it was about 3 a.m., I kind of woke up to this weird grumbling noise. Um, and for those who've, who've been in Africa, you're, you're familiar with the, with the elephant grumbles. Mm-hmm. And so I heard this grumbling and I thought, I couldn't quite face it, but it sounded most similar to an elephant. So I kind of thought, okay, well, it's an elephant. 
um, and fell back asleep. Then I woke up, I think, at about 5.30 a.m. and heard the grumbling again, but this time it was really close. Um, and so I kind of sat up in my tent to get my orientation and listen to see, you know, if it would make another noise. Um, and my colleague, who's also, who was my long-term tracker, um, had been with me from our PhD studies. He was with me. And I could hear him sit up in his tent as well, but he didn't make a move and he, he didn't say anything. And so I heard the, the grumble again. Um, and he, obviously thinking of me and vice versa, called out to me and said, don't get out of the tent. Um, and I didn't quite hear what he said. <laughs> right, Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness for good friends. <laughs> um, and he, he kind of said, don't get out of the tent. And um, he mentioned an animal, and I, in my head, had assumed elephant. And so I kind of called back to him. And, and at that stage, my other friend who was with us, um, and he was kind of on, on the far side of where I was situated, um, he realized that I didn't understand. And he said to me, watch out, it's a leopard. And as he said that, this leopard just came charging towards my tent, um, oh. picking up dust, growling, snorting, hissing. <laughs> um, and I very quickly re realized that I had to keep really quiet and really still. Um, and I couldn't quite understand because that's really unusual behavior, usually, especially in areas where the animals are not used to there being campsites. They very much avoid you. Um, you know, I think this was like the only incident in the six or seven years that I'd been out camping, you know, camping in the Delta that anything sort of, I guess, hair-raising had happened. And so I sat, uh -huh. sat up and sat really, I sat really quietly um, and absolutely still. Um, and she continued, this leopard, I didn't really know at the time what was going on, but continued to circle my tent. Um, and hiss and spit um, and growl. And oh my. I think she kind of, yeah, was really hair raising. And I, I was also really, and also understood that in that situation, the best thing to do was to just be absolutely still um, and kind of ride it out. And she kind of held us hostage in the tent for about an hour and a half. Oh my. Um, and at this stage, yeah, it was quite a long, it was quite a long um, experience. And at this stage, I'd basically come to the conclusion that it must be, it must be a female with cubs because this was completely abnormal. There would be no uh -huh. reason for a predator to behave in that way unless um, she was protecting something. Um, and so after not moving a muscle for about an hour and a half, um, my friend he was on the far side of, of the camp. He could see just out of his tent. And she went into the previously hollow lock and pulled out the cub. So obviously, oh, so sometime the in the night. in the log. <laughs> yeah. So, so we had inadvertently camped right next to this leopard den. And, um, you know, checked the log that I think at that time the cubs were playing. And had, at some point during the night back into their safe hiding place without us realizing um, and so she was not very happy with us and she she then eventually grabbed her cub and and started moving off um, and once you know they'd been silenced for quite a period of time we I heard my colleague um, zip his tent 
And so I peeked my head out and he said, okay, let's go quickly. And I just had a feeling and I, and I kind of went through the log and I shone my torch in and there was another pair of eyes staring out at me. And so I just oh said my. to them, I was like, get in the car. Don't, yeah, don't take anything. There's another cub. She's going to come back for it. We literally just evacuated <laughs> from camp so far away. Um, had a really strong cup of coffee. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, we, I think we waited for about two hours before we thought, okay, it's probably safe to assume that she's now had enough time to come back and move her other cubs um, before we went and very, very hastily packed up camp. <laughs> Oh my! Well, that definitely. When I asked for a hair-raising adventure, that that must have been one sitting there in the dark with a, a very angry mama leopard circling your tent <laughs> for hours. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that was that was a very good, uh, very good bush lesson in um, in keeping your cool in a dangerous situation. Yes, yes. I, I'm not sure I would have had your presence of mind to be as still as it sounds like you <laughs> were able to keep yourself, but I guess that was the only option at that point. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, Robin, we're, we're starting to uh, reach the end of our allotted time. Um, I, I did want to ask one final question Um about what can people do? What's your recommendation for people who uh, want to help preserve lions? Uh, in a minute, I'll give them information about how to donate to uh, your uh, project. Uh, but uh, other than money, and, and I'm not saying that money isn't a good thing, um, but are there other things that people can do to help preserve lions? And other big cats. Yeah, I think I. Yeah, I think I think for lions and like you say, um, other big cats. Um, I know you mentioned your trip to to India and how you really enjoyed that with the tigers. Um, and I think for people who can can afford it and, and who are interested, that that going on safari um, and supporting tourism in these areas is really important um, because it does give that economic incentive to conserve the animals in their natural habitat, um, you know, going forward. Um, and then also when you do choose where you're going to go, just do a bit of research, um, you know, really support companies who focus um, on conservation and have a strong conservation ethos um, and who also have a strong community-based ethos in uplifting local communities and providing um, providing work for them. Um, and then I think the other thing which is really important and I think is really underestimated is just really teaching children and teaching the younger generation about the importance of wildlife. Um, I know not everyone right. is in a position where they can afford really, you know, growing up, I... Um, you know, I couldn't afford to travel all over the world. We um, I very much just engaged with wildlife wherever I could, even if that meant it was just in your backyard. And I think teaching children the value of, of wildlife and the value of nature, um, even if it's in your backyard, um, you know, even if it's joining a local environmental club is really important because, you know, you could be fostering that interest that, that, that then leads to, to that generation perhaps um, 
you know, being more more conscious of things like climate change, um, being more conscious of things like, um, you know, consumerism and selecting products which are wildlife friendly. Um, so I think that element is also is also really important. You could potentially, you know, foster the interest of someone who is, you know, the next Jane Goodall or the next Lyme researcher. Excellent, ex- excellent suggestions. So, speaking of donations, though, um, the the organization that Robin works with is uh, affiliated with the University of Oxford um, in in England. Uh, but their project, Wild Crew, which is Wild C R U. Um, you can donate to that at www.oxfordna.org slash donate. Uh, if you do, select Wild Crew and the Trans-Kalahari Predator Program for your gift donation. Um, that complete donation information can be found in this episode's podcast description, in case you didn't catch all of that, um, and also in the book, uh, my book, Dead on the Delta, the acknowledgement section has that information. It's, it's a very worthwhile cause. Uh, I want to remind you, speaking of Dead on the Delta, that it's available in print and Kindle editions. Uh, it's at most bookstores and online retailers. Uh, and Robin, a most important, uh, Robin Kotzka, thank you so much for being my guest today uh, and for allowing me to engage with you when I was in Botswana and learn more about uh, the life of a lion researcher and the important um, issues facing lions and other big cats today. I appreciate you uh, joining me today. Thank you and, so much. Um, I will leave you all with a quote. Um, for each of these, I'm uh, ending with a quote about Africa. Today's is by John Hemingway, uh, who says, if I've ever seen magic, it's been in Africa. Please tune in next week when I talk about uh, more about my Botswana research, uh, and I'll also touch on the aspects of elephant and other wildlife poaching, which are featured in the book. So thank you for joining us, and thanks, Robin. Thanks again. 